0: Hi, and welcome to the LEAP Podcast. LEAP stands for Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. I'm Linda Akutagawa, your co-host.
1: And I'm Yana, your co-host for the LEAP Podcast. Welcome to Season 3. Our theme this season is centered on identity within a leadership context and how we, as Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders, navigate the complexities of our worlds as leaders through the lens of identity.
0: Our hope for all of you who are listening to us is that these conversations spark new ideas and you're able to apply them in your own life. Hi everyone, thank you. Welcome to our podcast here Jan, I'm so excited that we're together here and we are going to be having this fabulous conversation with The very first Asian American poet laureate for California, Lee Herrick. Lee, thank you very much for spending time with us and being here with us. We're really appreciative and looking really forward to this conversation with you.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here.
0: And
1: Lee, I just wanted to say I'm so happy to see you again. The last time you and I saw each other, I think it was sometime maybe 10 years ago. (laughs) And you haven't changed, you still look great. So thank you again for making the time and we're so excited to learn more about your experience as a poet, a writer, a creative, and The theme for today is really about pursuing an artistic life as an Asian American poet. So we have lots of great questions to ask you.
2: It sounds great, and you are very kind, Jan, and it's great to see you (laughs) too. Starting from the beginning, I was born in Daejeon in South Korea, and I was adopted when I was about 10 months old, and I was raised in the East Bay with a Caucasian family with whom I'm still close. But, you know, it was an East Bay town that was... Is mostly white and in a family where I was the only Asian American. And so on the one hand, I had a, a good Upbringing and a, a nice childhood with a lot of opportunities. There was also a growing sense of otherness and questions about identity and things like that. So I attended schools in the East Bay and then later we moved to the Central Valley in California. I became an English major and I played a lot of soccer and started to write poetry in high school and got more serious about it in college. Now I'm a, a father and a husband, and a professor, and I was just named California Poet Laureate.
1: I just wanted to add here that Lee is the author of three books of poems, including Scar and Flower, and you also co-edited The World I Leave You, Asian American Poets on Faith and Spirit. And you were saying you do teach, you teach at Fresno City College, and in the MFA program at the University of Nevada, Reno at Lake Tahoe. You mentioned that you are uh, California's uh, Poet Laureate, and you are the first Asian-American to serve in the role. Is that correct?
2: Yes, yes. Um, It's pretty exciting. I think there probably could have been one or two before me, I think Mm -hmm. as often as the case, and believe there will be some after me. But it's it's an incredible honor just to be the Poet Laureate, but also to be the first Asian-American. It's been exciting being at different venues around the state when people will come up to me and, and mention that. It's a great feeling and it's an honor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Those who are listening, you know, I think we've heard poet laureates. What
2: does it mean? Like, what does a poet laureate do? That's a good question. So typically a poet laureate will advocate and educate and try to inspire communities, whether it's a school or people at a public library, or I've been speaking to city council and government officials. I was last week speaking at a state prison. So really as far and wide as, as one can to advocate for poetry. But I think most states have a poet laureate and many countries. It's a designated appointment. Usually it's the mayor. In my case, it was Governor Newsom's office and Governor Newsom who appointed me after I was nominated and made it to the final phase where his staff got involved. It's just a lot of advocating for poetry wherever we can.
0: I believe you were the poet laureate for the city of Fresno too, since you mentioned uh, most cities have it, which I never realized until I started to really read your bio and I thought, wow, this is really interesting that a city would also have a poet laureate as well too.
2: A lot of cities have poets laureate sometimes it's a county you know i've been traveling and a lot of the bigger cities have them but small towns like lakeport county up in northern california and it's it's a way for poetry to make its way into the fabric of community the arts go a long way in inspiring and providing opportunities for people they're important positions and i'm glad that more people are finding out about them
1: lee you mentioned earlier that you had played soccer as you were growing up, I was curious what how did poetry come into your life? Does is it related to soccer at all? It's a
2: good question. Yeah, soccer was always a big part of my life. I grew up playing soccer and played it all through high school and four years of college and very low level semi pro club soccer. And <laughs> there was this visceral freedom and liberation and exhilaration I felt when I played soccer. I don't know if you're still involved with dance, but I remember you used to be very physical too. And with dance and soccer and things like that, there's just this combination between the physical and the mental and the spiritual that took over me when I played soccer. I mean, now I couldn't sprint if I had to. But still, it's a big part of my life. And so poetry came along probably a little bit after music, where, you know, the same time when I was playing soccer as a boy, I loved music and music lyrics. Mm -hmm. I would write down all the lyrics to my favorite songs, listening to Mm -hmm. Americans' Top 40 on the weekend and <laughs> and then I discovered in high school I discovered rap and punk and at that time hmm. you know I had a fair amount of anger and it probably related to my adoption that was starting to surface and those emotions that I didn't have a place for I yep. had a hard time talking about grief and loss and anger the music and then eventually the poetry was the place for that. I could read it and I could relate to the writers and the songwriters. And then when I started to write it, I felt that same kind of visceral, physical, mental change Mm -hmm. and kind of a a sense of freedom when I wrote. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if that's a, a direct link to soccer, but definitely became a part of of my life, that's that's been pretty mm-hmm. transformative for me.
1: Oh, that's great! I love that you were thinking about linking it to soccer. I wonder if anything has to do with like one is in the physical realm and the other is more in the emotional and it's not a tangible realm. So there are two ways for you to express yourself in some mm. ways.
2: Could yeah. be.
1: I was curious. We we're actually talking. Linda and I were talking about you know just this idea of poetry and identity and if the two are complementary in some way. So did poetry help you to connect with your identity in some way?
2: Definitely. Especially, I think, as an adoptee, although I think poetry can help any person with identity. But as an adoptee, I didn't have those cultural or historical or even familial stories as part of my upbringing. So my identity was shaped by the people around me as they saw me. So American, somebody without an accent, somebody who they could relate to on their terms, which in my case was often whiteness. And what I realized was that as much as they were seeing me like that, that's not who I was. And it started to change how I saw myself. In other words, I started to see myself as more Asian American as I got older. And poetry was... One of the main ways I started to learn about myself, about Asian American identity and culture just by reading other writers and definitely starting to write it myself. I think that's where we begin to discover more about ourselves is, is through the writing. And so mm-hmm. absolutely very formative for me as an Asian American and as a poet.
0: This is so interesting. And uh, so many questions that I want to ask about. Well, one, when you were speaking about not having the the kind of the cultural or familial Stories and that I think what I heard you say is your identity was shaped by the people around you. And I thought I heard you also say that you were seen as, I'm going to just say, quote unquote, American, which as someone who phenotypically presents as Asian, did you? Feel that you were seen as quote unquote American because of your family, your white family, or was there something else? And I and I think I asked this question because I feel like this is part of the struggle for particularly I think Asian Americans and I think Latinos as well to of not Ever being American enough, that we're always going to be questioned about our Americanness. We're always something else first, and we're not allowed to just be American. And that was really interesting hearing what you were saying about that. And if you don't mind maybe elaborating more on that, that would be really uh, yeah. fascinating to hear
2: your perspective. Yeah, to your question. It was mostly by my relatives, I think, my my white family, who would say, we see you as American. And often, transnational or transracial adoptees are told this, especially when I was growing up in the 1970s, which sort of mirrored the language of the day, which is, we don't see color, we're all one. And other very well-intentioned phrases like that. However, as I think we know, those also serve as a kind of erasure. And in my case, it was an erasure of my Koreanness, my Asianness. So it was well-intended, but very confusing for an Asian American. Kid in an all white family. So there's that level of it. Another level of it, now you have me thinking about, Linda, and it's a good question, is that when I look at you or Jan, I see American also. I see Asian American, mm-hmm. but I also see American in the same way that I might see people from other backgrounds. One thing that poetry did for me was allow me to tap into a kind of politicized consciousness that has made me less afraid to call out questions of identity. So for example, an Mm -hmm. Americanness, a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. So for example, one thing I used to be asked a lot was, are you from South Korea or North Korea? And I used to feel like I had to answer that. And I used to sometimes even want to answer that to make the other person feel at ease that I wasn't from North Korea. Well, now I think completely Mm -hmm. differently think that's a loaded question, and now I don't answer it. I say I'm Korean, or or I might say I'm South Korean, but when I see a person ask Mm -hmm. if I'm from the North with this fear and all of those stereotypes or the things that they've seen in the media, I just don't answer it. Those things are complex. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. it's organizations like Leap and others. And so many people that are changing the way we see not only ourselves, but also our sense of belonging here. And hopefully along the way, changing how others see us too, so we don't have to continually justify our existence, our place, and uh, who we are. Great.
1: Yeah. For you around, this idea of belonging and you expressed it. I think there's something there that I wanted to really dig into. In your mind, when you think about belonging as who you are as Lee Herrick, what words would you use to describe that?
2: The poet in me goes to sort of a semantic or etymological view of the word belonging. So I mean, in one sense, it means to me that we are always in a state of wanting or hoping, or longing. And in my case, it's a sense of knowing that we belong enough to be part of a community, to not let division or categories fracture us off too much so that we're alone. It can be belonging to family or a community. And I think that probably changes for people and most, if not all, Asian Americans. I, I, whether a person's adopted or not, I, I imagine that these questions of belonging and family and culture apply to all of us. But mm-hmm. You know, I'm 52 now, and it's been a journey for me. I didn't always feel this way. There was a time in probably my 20s, maybe even my early 30s, where I wouldn't feel too comfortable in certain situations. And so it took me a while to feel at home With my Asian American identity. And I think each of us is unique, and and that's as it should be. But I hope fewer and fewer of us feel isolated and alone.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lee, because you talked about semantics, I am curious about the act of writing poetry and how you came to write poetry to begin with. What is that like? You know, how do you Mm -hmm. write those few sentences down where you're like, all right, I'm writing poetry
0: now? (laughs) Um, Especially because you said you started in high school, and, you know, high school kids and poetry is not something that I oftentimes connect or imagine.
2: Yeah. You know, so in in high school, I'm going to be completely honest, sometimes I wasn't the best student, and (laughs) I would be in a class, and... I was supposed to be listening, but I would be writing songs. My mind would just go to these lyrics, and I was writing about my emotions, and I was making up these stories. And by the end of a class, I'd have a a good two songs written. (laughs) I did my best. uh, And for the most part, I was a good student. But that's how it really started, was just writing songs. Mm -hmm. To your question, yawn. I... A lot of it started with rhyme, and what they call slant Mm -hmm. rhyme, and rhythm. I loved the rhythm of words, syllabics. There's a, a line in a poem I wrote recently that says, an open field, a simple room, a quiet bar. And so those are all working with syllabics to achieve some rhythm. And I, I loved mm-hmm. the musicality of language. I loved the mm-hmm. rhythm of the words across the page. Sometimes it didn't make sense. And I've learned that that's mm-hmm. often a sign of poetry too. It doesn't always have to make perfect sense. So I loved it a surprise of it. Mm-hmm. I loved the imagination mm-hmm. and how it could sort of just take over. And that's when I felt like I was writing poetry, when I felt like I was in some zone. Going back to soccer, it's a similar kind of thing where you lose a sense of time, that you're so much in the mm-hmm. writing. And it just feels so good. Mm-hmm. That Those are some great, great moments. And that's when I feel like I'm writing poetry.
0: I like writing. And yet poetry was a form of writing that I could never, I think, connect with or understand. And and maybe part of it is because it felt like, you know, in school, you know, they, they almost tell you there's a certain way to write quote unquote poetry. And what you're describing really just upends everything that I feel like I was taught about what poetry is supposed to be like. And I got your book, This Many Miles from Desire. And one of the things that struck me is just how different the poetry in the book is just from not only just length and what you talk about, but just even the structure of it. And it was really interesting. And I never knew poetry could be like that. It does make me wonder I mean you know with what you're saying and maybe it makes sense you know like the songs it's just writing from from songs instead of writing to just write but if I can ask you, were you ever attracted to like more long prose you know like long text narrative kind of writing versus the poetry because you you shared that you know you were making up stories.
2: I wanted to speak to the first part of your question, Linda, because that's interesting how you said that the poems seemed different or that you didn't know poems could be like Mm -hmm. that. That is a feeling that I had also. And I think it's an experience that many poets and maybe many poets of color experience, partly because what we, or at least what I got in school, wasn't that kind of poetry. Now, I think that those writers that we're getting in school are important and essential. I to love Shakespeare and Whitman and still love Whitman and Shakespeare and Plath and Dickinson and all the canonical writers. But Shakespeare, for example, was born in 1564 and passed in 1616. And what I often tell my students is, as great as that might be, who are we now? Who are you now? What are you feeling and writing about in a language that's true to your experience? And one thing I always also say is, is how important it is for poets, Asian American poets, and writers of any genre to find the writing outside of what you're given in school, because as great as those things might be, there is an infinite number of writers outside of a syllabus that are amazing and essential and, and can really enlighten us. So yeah, I was writing things. I was trying to be true to myself. And so have I written in longer forms or prose forms? I've tried. I've got friends and read other genres pretty regularly. But the attempts that I've made have slowly trying to chip a, chip away at a memoir. But it's a challenging, instrument, if you will. I I feel like it's a different way of seeing and a different way of crafting a story or an idea. So those things have been difficult for me. I I feel like I'm a poet. Like a drummer might feel like she's a drummer as opposed to a guitarist. But I want to play the guitar because I think the memoir at least is allowing, it's stretching me in a way that is different than in a poem. I'm hoping I can put some more time into that.
0: I think one of the things that I'd be curious about is how support supportive was your family in mm. writing poetry and pursuing poetry?
2: My mom, as an artist, I think was more outwardly supportive. I think she, she understood what it meant to work on a poem. I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, I didn't know you could work on a poem. <laughs> it just sounded strange to me. Like, couldn't <laughs> you just write that in a minute or two? <laughs> She was, she was supportive. My dad, I think it took him a little longer to understand. You know, he's in the finance world and financial advising and investments. And I remember when I told him I was changing my major from business to English. <laughs> it was just this silence in the room. <laughs> he, he wanted me to be able to support myself. He wanted me to be able to get a good job which I can respect as a parent now, Mm -hmm. but I've believed that I would be able to get a job. It might not be the direct route. I think the arts sometimes are a little less linear in financial stability, but there are many ways to have financial stability and other kinds of stability through the arts, so yeah, they were supportive. My dad supported me. He still comes to my readings when he can, but I think he's also glad that I have a job (laughs) and can pay my Mm -hmm. bills.
1: So, as a follow-up to that, um, the question we have for you is: What was it? What is it like to fully embrace the life of a poet and a writer? What is that like for you?
2: I think it means to absorb it whenever you can. Meaning, going to readings. I love discovering new poets. I'm reading constantly. I'm writing, and also, I think living life as if it's a poem i mean trying mm-hmm. to notice the nuance of the world around us whether it's the birds singing outside the window or the flavor from the tacos or mm-hmm. the banchan or <laughs> the the sound of a child's laughter and for me living in the life of a writer is, is partly that is just being in tune with the grace and also the difficulties of this life. Those are some ways I think about it as being as present as I can and also being as immersed as I can with the actual writing.
1: That's an incredible... It requires incredible strength because we live in a society that's like moving at 120 miles per hour. And it's just, you know, this idea of an attention economy, you know, that our attention is being sold and traded. So how do you... Stay present. How do you minimize distractions on a daily basis?
2: It's a great question. And whereas I am trying to be in tune with the natural world and be present, of course, I'm also plugged in in a lot of ways that these days it feels like you need to be course email and podcasts and, and things like that. For me, one of the most helpful things has been to know very clearly what is important and what i value and what is less important and what i don't value as much i've really discovered the truth in the adage that time is money mm-hmm. and i'm i'm very protective of my time and that allows us i think to recognize more of what isn't the noise and what i don't want to put my attention to so i think priorities Can help clarify. I also think about honor and what I want and what I hope for and and trying to be present. As much as this laureateship has me traveling, there's no reading or no event that would ever take precedence over, for example, if my daughter needed me for something. And so having those things. Really clear family or a good friend. I think those allow me to navigate all of the attention economy challenges with more purpose. Yeah.
0: That's great. I'm kind of thinking about what you do as a poet, but also as a as an instructor. If you put your instructor faculty hat on and, <laughs> you know, you look out at the students that you have that are, you know, being in the Central Valley, probably very diverse. I think for the purposes of those who might be listening, is there a way that you can really help your students really think about leaning into their identity and to use that to really start hearing I guess the poetry in them partly I'm also asking because I want to know too like is that something I can
2: do (laughs) Uh, that's a good question I should say and I've never had a chance to say this and I I maybe should have just written to you Linda but when I was probably twenty. or so is when I got hired on the tenure track and I was a very young Asian American professor I was the first Asian American hired in the entire division at my college and I attended a leap uh, I think it was a conference or something a little symposium and it was a game changer for me because I didn't realize there were so many people doing what I was doing or wanting to do what I was doing. And so the organizations like this, I think, are so important. So that's a long way of saying thank you for everything that you both are doing and that LEAP is doing.
1: In honor of Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Heritage Month, LEAP is joining the Asian Pacific Fund and AAPI Data's Give in May campaign to raise awareness and funds. Donate today at giveinmay.org forward slash leap. That's giveinmay.org forward slash leap. Thank you.
2: With students and asian Americanness and leaning into their own sense of self, whatever that might be, I think just having that awareness and having that as a guidepost for you for any person working with young people or students of any age is half the battle, as they say, because you can enter every interaction like that. For example, they want to be in entertainment or the arts. You know, I was just at San Francisco State and a Vietnamese American student came up to me and said that she's a theater major, but her parents were not sure about that as a career. And to her or any other student, I just try to praise and encourage while also not getting involved. And I'm not trying to overstep any boundaries with what their parents or their families might want. But I think a lot of times it's the young people who educate the parents and the professors. The students often know more about these kinds of things than the professors do in terms of more access for Asian Americans, more people in certain fields that some of the professors just aren't aware of. But I try to praise and encourage everywhere I can. And also what I try to do is give them resources that they might not know about. So for example, I could talk about East West players. I could talk about people that I know or know of in the entertainment field or any other field that they might be entering. Those are some ways to encourage, but also to help them. And just to validate, validation just goes a long way for people, especially when they're young and and making their way. For me, at least, it it meant everything just to have a professor encourage me and like what I was doing. I would also give a humble challenge to any listeners, of course, who are Asia, Pacific Islander, but also who aren't black, Latino, native, white, that you can also encourage folks along the way. And hopefully you have some resources to recommend to these students. And and I think they'll sense that and they'll have an impact.
1: Lee, I love what you said about supporting and validating your students and encouraging them while maintaining a sense of boundary. How do you push them and challenge them so that they become better instead of just staying where they are in terms of their skill or strength or talent, how do you encourage them to Mm. get better?
2: And by get better, you mean just keeping on in the directions they're going and growing academically?
1: Yeah. And then, you know, there's a level of critical feedback, I'm sure, that's required when you are evaluating students. So how do you balance both?
2: With poetry students, I try to tell them that they are not the poem. And by that, I mean, if a student thinks that when the professor says, or encourages some revision on the poem, or the ending is a little bit rough, if they're translating that as saying, the professor doesn't like me, I'm a little rough, I'm a bad person, I won't amount to anything. That's going to be a very hard road for them. So the first thing I try to establish or help them understand is that they are not the poem. They're not Mm -hmm. the song, they're not the audition. And so Mm -hmm. if they can see the feedback as critical or helpful for their work or their craft, Mm -hmm. I think it'll be more likely to improve. Another thing is encouraging them to recognize when opportunities are. Are in front of them. So for example, when I was a junior in college, there was a professor who asked me if I wanted to teach a 10-minute lesson to his class. And it excited me because I knew it was this opportunity, but it terrified me because speaking in public at that time literally terrified me. I would run in the other direction. But after about three weeks, I thought more and more, and I worked up the courage to go back to his office and asked him if he was still willing to let me do that? And he said, sure. And he gave me that chance. And so that was very helpful for me, just being able to speak in front of a class for 10 minutes at that time. So the other thing I would say to students is to recognize when opportunities are there. And even if they're Mm -hmm. a little bit scary, try to move in that direction. Mm -hmm. I tell them that those butterflies or those nerves are a sign of them growing, especially if it's a good opportunity, right? Not something that's abusive or something that's negative. But if it's a good opportunity, like an internship or meeting with somebody in your position that might intimidate them to step into that, and that will help them. It helps me a lot. That's
0: great. I love it. What I read about your poetry, could you speak about how you're connecting your sense of social justice and advocacy for diverse communities through your poetry? I think that would be really interesting to hear from you and especially how that also is woven in with your sense of self and identity?
2: When I was about, probably in my mid-20s, I met a poet who would become a dear friend, and she was very important for me as, as a poet, particularly interested in social justice and fairness, or equity, or whatever the term is today. And that was a poet named Amy Uematsu from Los Angeles. Uh, She co-edited the first Asian American reader called Roots published in 1970 and her book in 1992 was called Nights of Fire Nights of Rain and so when I read Amy's work I also discovered another Japanese American poet named Lawson Fusao Anada who wrote a book called Drawing the Line and so these were poets writing about internment and some of the injustices around that and I read other poets that were helpful for me. Black poets in particular. uh, I would become very unsettled with cases like the Rodney King in 1992, the Rodney King beating, and how those four officers were exonerated of excessive force, which I couldn't believe when I was 22. But I began to see how some of those things, as sad as they are and as tragic as they are, became more believable to me the more I understood the structures around racism in this country. And so just as a person, it's important to me, so it's going to make its way at times into my poetics or my poetry. So not everything I write is from a political lens or a justice lens, but any artist or songwriter who's already thinking of these things is going to have a lyric or even a song or sometimes an album or a film or a book of poems that is comprised of that thinking. I can't separate the art from what is going on in the world or going on inside of me. And so those are some ways that the poetry is has related to justice. And so with my laureateship, what I'm hoping to do is at events where I'm invited and I'm the feature, if I can arrange it with the curators, is that I'm asking them to invite a local social justice or civic engagement organization to speak for a few minutes at the event. So in Fresno in February, we had an event and a wonderful organization called Central California Asian Pacific Women were present, and they talked about the work that they do in the community to provide scholarships for Asian American college students who are women going into certain fields. So those are some of the things I'm doing, and hopefully people along the way can find something in their own lives to care about, whether it's a justice issue, or again, just being involved with their communities. It could be from the environments, or housing, or race, Or, or any issue that's important to them,
1: Lee. You mentioned earlier about when you were growing up, there was a sense of like the the society society in general saying, "I don't see color." You know, um, we're all the same. You know, that was sort of the narrative back in the seventies and eighties. The poem that you read, um, and there's a video available of it, "My California." Just curious, like how that ties into or it, it doesn't, maybe, from how you were raised as it relates to race and f- fitting in. and If there is something in that poem that is really the opposite of what you saw as you were growing up, right?
2: That's interesting because that poem, I think, is one of the real turning points and one of the the real manifestations of that political consciousness entering a poem. So I wrote that poem around 2008, and it was the time when Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were running for president. Mm -hmm. And here you have a, a woman and a person of color who were both vying for the presidency. And I thought in California, where I was raised and where I was often told or made to think that I was an outsider, I started to think this is my state too. And I felt more comfortable saying that. And it was probably the first time I wrote something like that, where I was claiming my space, Mm -hmm. unapologetically, and not only claiming it, but also speaking about how I envision it being or changing and what I wanted to see. Mm And so, I think that's something to think about, especially for any person who's feeling like that at times. And it'd be easy for me to say, well, just do this because I did it. And I I don't ever like to say that. I think that each of us is different, and it's different for different reasons. But I believe deeply and firmly that we are all Californians and that we have the right to this space to exist without violence, aggression and also to exist being heard for our views yep. and yep. being respected as much at the table as any other person in that room i hope that we're getting there but that poem was was one of the ways i was trying to express that yeah
1: I really love that poem. As we were stalking you, you know, behind the scenes, it was one of the videos that came up and I loved it. And it is available on YouTube, I think. So there's a question that, and you actually brought it up as we were having the initial conversation with you about joining the podcast. You mentioned that a creative life requires a longer journey. And what has been most surprising to you about your own journey onto this creative life that you're in?
2: I think it does. I think a creative life as a writer or not, I think just a creative life as a person is that long game. It is that longer journey. And it's a continual discovery. And I think that through the discovery, we find the joy and we find the continual joy. Right when we think we might be in a rut or when we think something is over, there are always new opportunities. There's always more light. There's always more joy. And I say this also not naively dismissing trauma or struggle or pain. But I think because of those things that creative life allows us to see so much more of ourselves and the world around us. And an example that just came to mind as you were asking me that, Jan, was, Michelle Yeoh, one of our time's greatest actor actresses, talking about this recent role in Everything Everywhere All at Once and how much joy she's discovering at this stage of her life and her career. And so I think whether a person's an actress or a poet or a teacher or whatever, I think that creativity is a restorative, rejuvenating, beautiful force in our lives that that I hope everyone can tap into. There's
0: something to be said about what you just said about this creative life and perhaps the journey that individuals go through. Given where you are at your stage in life, do you feel like you're rediscovering a new joy for yourself mm. in this creative life?
2: Gosh, these are good questions. I've always found joy in meeting different people. Even though I'm a bit of an introvert, I really do love that. And at this stage of my life, I would say that's being sort of rediscovered and and maybe in more depth. Uh, And it might be just because I'm traveling so much now with the laureate ship, but also how people are engaging with me I don't know why this comes to mind, but last week when I was reading at the state prison, one of the people read a poem of mine and he asked me what it meant. And I said it was about the joy, but also the difficulties and pain of of having a birthday as an adoptee, where I didn't know exactly if it was my birthday. And in the poem, there was a scene with a match and a flame. And I, he said, oh my gosh, that's so interesting. He said, I never would have thought that. He said, I thought it was about heroin. I thought it was about doing drugs, and I just thought, my first thought was that's not what it was about, but also that I loved discovering or I loved hearing that's how he saw it. Honestly, those are the things that I'm loving is more about people, humanity, poetry's possibilities, things like that. I feel lucky to be in this position.
1: We're lucky to have you today and beyond this podcast. I think we have one final question for you.
0: As with anything... What words of wisdom would you have for our audience who may also want to pursue an artistic life?
2: I would say, be true to yourself. Don't limit yourself. Try to explore and experience as much of the world as you can. And that might mean traveling to another country, but it also could just mean trying a new restaurant in your town. Mm-hmm. It could mean listening differently or better to someone that you know or don't know. So I believe deeply that experiences enrich our art and open up doorways to creativity. Of course, knowing your craft and learning your craft as much as you can. Whatever art form a person is engaged in, I think she ought to, or, or he or she or they ought to know as much as they can about the craft. Mm -hmm. So that they can pivot and they can shape their own work in unique ways, you know, find mentors or trusted people who can help and support and inspire and yeah, just be true to yourself and keep going.
1: Well, thank you, Lee. This has been just a beautiful conversation. I I feel like I could listen to you for the next two hours, but I know we don't have that with you and time is money. We know that. So (laughs) I just, I wanted to say thank you again uh, for being here with us, spending time with us and helping us to connect you to our listeners it was a truly meaningful conversation. One last question. How can people learn more about your work, um, see you in person? Where should they go to learn
2: more? Go to my website. It's leeherrick.com. There's a calendar of events there. I'm also on Facebook, and the California Arts Council will also have a schedule up for me soon. And Vaughn, I just want to say thank you so much. And Linda, thank you for having me. It's an honor and uh very grateful. So thank you.
0: Lee, I just want to just say the same back to you. Thank you for being on with us. It's been certainly an absolutely a pleasure and an honor and I I have to say I'm not only inspired but I hope that the audience goes away inspired as well too. I think one of the mm-hmm. things for me that I think as as Asian Americans, particularly as we're so beholden to what's supposed to be and the rules, that when you talked about, and when I see your poetry, it's almost like there, there doesn't have to be these rules, that we self-impose these rules on ourselves, and that we can actually create, you know, both the life and pursue something that makes sense for us and i feel like that's part of the takeaway that i've gotten and i feel so inspired and just so thankful to you for for coming on and and sharing your your art with us
2: oh goodness thank you so much linda thank you so much that means a lot and i agree with what you said we can we can make our own way
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah thank you thank you thank
0: you to my partner <laughs> and my <laughs> I, I, yes <laughs> and that's and it was. Thank you for joining Jan and I for this Season 3 episode of the Leap Podcast. Stay connected with Leap by joining Leap's mailing list at leap.org and follow us on Leap's social media on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.
1: And if you really enjoyed this podcast, please donate to Leap. Thank you all for tuning in today. We look forward to being with you next time.